Good morning, all you cowboys and cowgirls out there. This is your host, Ryan Novozinski, coming at you live from my own studio, right here in lovely downtown Stillwater, Oklahoma. This is the first ever episode of my new podcast called Deep in the Novo, where me and sports editor for the Ocali, Sadiq Tuma, will be doing a similar thing to my other podcast called In the Novo, where we're going to interview some of the biggest names in sports and have them on to talk about OSU and other various topics across the sports world. Today's episode includes OSU head coach Mike Boynton, and he talks all about the Black Lives Matter movement and all the protests going on across the country right now. So without further ado, I'm going to play you guys the clip of a prior interview with Mike Boynton where he talked about his childhood and talked about the things he had to experience growing up with police. And then after he tells that story, we're going to play the actual episode of our interview with OSU head basketball coach Mike Boynton. Hope you all enjoy. Never shared it before, to be perfectly honest. And it really wasn't until, because I never told my parents even this. Or so on, I think I sent out that message on Friday. Um, and it, it was after a week of really trying to figure out if I wanted to even go there publicly and make a statement. Because I knew I had to come from a place of genuineness. And it was personal for me just to see what happened. So I'll give you the story real quick. I was 12 years old. Um, just kind of riding a bike like I did probably five times a week. It was summertime, so it was fairly nice out. I, I'm pretty sure I remember having on a pair of blue shorts and a gray T-shirt. And, um, you know, if, if you've ever been in New York City, the sound of a police siren is like birds chirping in many parts of the country. I mean, so it very rarely alarms you, especially if you don't think like you're part of the situation. <laughs> So I'm riding my bike and I feel probably maybe a hundred yards behind me, I hear a police siren and I just keep riding along and I hear it for the next few 30 seconds, a minute or so, getting eerily closer to where I am. And so I'm kind of looking around trying to see if maybe here up in front of me, maybe something going on and to make a long story short, uh, what happened was the the cop car kind of it jumped the curb onto the sidewalk. And I looked over my shoulder just as I saw this happening and couldn't really understand why this was happening. I first assumed maybe the cop lost control of the car. And then they slammed on the brakes just before basically making collision with my bicycle myself. And so I jumped off the bike, uh, kind of threw my hands up against the building that was right behind me. Um, and you know with a state of confusion really didn't know what to do for the next several minutes so um i had never seen this before but i see three officers get out of one police car i only knew that two police officers would be in the car at once so when three officers jump out i was really more confused and all of them had their guns drawn and so here i am at 12 years old and i'll give you this i'm i look a little bit older but I was 12, so it's not like I looked 28. I mean, I may have looked 15. And I got on, again, I got on a pair of shorts and a t-shirt and I'm riding a bicycle. So I clearly don't have anything in my hands that could be threatening or dangerous to anybody. Um, and I jump off and put my hands up and one officer comes up and grabs me and shoves me against the uh, building, spreads my legs, does a pat down, and they start asking questions that I hardly can make out because I'm so flustered at this point. Where are you from? What are you doing here? Where are you going? What's your name? How old are you? Where's your ID? 
hardly any of it that I can really answer coherently at the moment. Um, and I feel, I know at this point, I'm probably sweating profusely. I may have gone to the bathroom on myself. I don't clearly remember that. <laughs> I was so nervous. And, um, it, that took about probably 30 seconds, but it felt like, I mean, forever. Sat me down on the ground. They go back, they're getting radio calls from other police stations. And one of the officers I hear say, hey, I think we're at the wrong place. It sounds like we need to be a couple blocks away. So the one officer who had me up against the uh, wall said, hey, sorry about that. Uh, you fit the description of somebody who we got a call who robbed the store here recently. And that didn't necessarily make it better because even then at 12 years old, I was aware that even if I had gone into a store and stolen a bag of potato chips or, uh, I don't know, a candy bar or soda or something, do I need three cop cars to jump a curb and pull their guns out on me to, to bring me to justice? Um, and so that that's kind of where it was for me. I never shared that. I told my parents about it after it came out because my dad called really like angry, wanting to know what happened. The only person I actually had shared that with was my wife um, because we've pretty much shared everything that we've gone through in our lives together. And so up until Friday, no one else even knew. And I told my team and my staff on, on Monday when we met. In what ways, as, as a, during your coaching career, um, I know you, you told that story from your, your childhood, but have you experienced anything uh, going up in your coaching career that, that is similar to that or, or anything at all? Um, from a police standpoint? A little bit of everything, maybe from a systematic standpoint, or maybe from a university or, or, or police. Any sort of discrimination, anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I'll say this. I, I've had experiences where I've been pulled over by police officers, and I've worried about what could happen. And I'm talking, like I said before, like in a very normal sense. Like I haven't, like, crashed into somebody or, you know, ran into a building and I'm, I'm talking just just speeding or failure to signal or whatever and the, i think that's the that's the thing that people are missing i don't know if it's intentional but because those feelings don't rise up in them it's hard to understand the the worry that a lot of african-american people have when they're simply pulled over in a normal citizen situation, you know? And sure, I mean, I've been wrong. I've sped, I've failed to signal to turn, right? I've, you know, I've, I don't run through red lights and, you know, things like that. But uh, I would say it's just the psyche. And I think that's what people are saying. Like this has been happening so much that psychologically we are worn. We, we want to just feel safe when the people who are sworn in and hired to protect and service, protect the people, serve the community, are actually not going to be threatened by our existence, right? And so I don't think I can point to any situation as an adult where something like my childhood experience happened, but there's certainly been times that I've gotten pulled over and like, man, I hope this guy's in a good mood and that I'm not going to do anything funny I almost always have my driver's license and insurance in a place that is very easy to describe and get to. 
I never have them in my pocket. <laughs> I mean, just things like that, that, you know, when, when people ignore privilege being a real thing, like that's what it is. It's the comfort of not having those worries. It's the ability to walk into a store and, and be viewed as a shopper. <laughs> it sounds very simple, but I could walk into a store with you, Ryan, and you're a shopper. I might be, but I may not be. <laughs> yeah, I be. Hey, Coach, yeah, you talk about the psyche, right? And that's, I think that's the thing people, it's hard to really latch onto until you're in that situation. Can, sure. can you, if you can, describe it, you know, kind of give people that don't know an insight into how difficult that is to, you know, walk around and not know what people think of you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard because I've never experienced anything else, you know? And so I think that's the problem with um, sometimes conflating two things. So, so I guess it was in probably five or six years ago, the Black Lives Matter thing kind of took off and became a thing. Well, instead of listening to what those people were saying, people just took offense to that phrase where if all lives matter, which I agree with, then black lives matter. I mean, how could that be not a thing if that's the case, right? If if all lives matter, which is what the response is, and it's a it's a rebuttal like no. And, I, and in many ways, I see that as, okay, so if you're saying that I can't say Black Lives Matter, then are you saying Black Lives don't matter? Because if you're not saying that and you're just saying all lives matter, then you're saying the same thing I'm saying. You're saying that Black Lives Matter. It's kind of like, and I saw I was on an interview yesterday, and a guy played a clip for me of a young lady talking about this very topic. And it had to do with like house fires. And I, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't get the clip. I just heard somebody play it for me. And, and the lady was saying, hey, um, the fire department's coming because my house is on fire. And someone a couple houses away said, but all houses matter. And, and she said, yeah. I'm not saying all, all houses don't matter. I'm telling you that my house is on fire. And so the fire department, I hope would drive past a lot of houses that sure, surely matter, but aren't on fire to get to the place where the problem is. <laughs> and people just can't grasp those simple things. We're not saying that white lives don't matter. That's not the phrase. It's not like it's saying black lives matter also. And if you're saying white lives matter, then you're actually saying black lives matter too. So why the confrontation about that, in my mind, is just because what I said before, people don't want to listen. They want to respond. And if we start listening, then we can really help each other. I really believe that if you sat down with black people and listened to their issues, you would feel compassion for the things that they would tell you is really bothersome for them 
And I'm sure they could listen to you talk about things that they have never experienced and kind of be like, wow, man, that sucks. <laughs> But until we actually listen to hear and understand as opposed to respond, then we're going to continue to have conflict. He talked about some of the issues. And, you know, when people think about the issues, people talk about the issues, they point to a lot of different reasons, right? Some people say, oh, it's because we have corrupt cops. Some people say white privilege. Some people say this or that. But as someone who's faced these adverse conditions head on, what do you see as the root cause in America? I think it's lack of compassion. And, and I think, you know, that's where, you know, stats are funny things, right? I tell our guys that all the time. The stats don't lie, right? If they're factual numbers, they don't lie, but they don't tell the whole story. So I get a stat sheet after every game we play. The guy with the most points is very rarely the most important player in the game that we play. Because that's not the only thing that mattered to us playing that game. So sometimes when people make an argument about something, then someone goes and looks up a stat that can combat it. (laughs) That's not the point. You're missing the point. This is a problem. I understand that these numbers may argue against this, but listen to the problem. And so I think people have to be willing to accept that all of us are a part of the problem. There are black people who are racist as well. <laughs> you know, those, they, those people exist too. But by and large, this started as a black suppression issue. There were black slave owners when slavery existed. There were many more white slave owners. So we have to be able to tackle the issue together in a real way with compassion for one another. It can't be that, well, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not privileged. I'm not racist. It can't be just what my experience is and how I live. It's how do we change the system collectively so that it is all lives mattering the same so that when um, a young black man is pulled over by the cops, he doesn't automatically worry how the simple incident will become tragic. You know, so I think compassion, humility, humility is a, we're missing a lot of that. I mean, we want to assume we know, we don't know. We don't know what other people are going through. We don't know what other people are living through. We only know what we've learned and lived through ourselves. Um, And and then again, I think confrontation, although in, you got to keep it in context, right? It doesn't need to resort to burning buildings down and robbing stores. That's not super productive. It gets people's attention, but it doesn't advance the ball in my mind. Um, But confrontation in a respectful way is a good thing. You have to be able to look someone in the eye and tell them, I love you, man, but that is wrong. <laughs> Coach, going back to, to what you had told me about, you know, the, the store analogy, like where if you're a shopper or, or if I'm a shopper, you're not a shopper. You know what I mean? Um, what sort and of, I'm not, I don't, I'm be clear. I'm not saying that's an absolute. Of right? course. No, no, of course. But of what course. I'm saying is that's scenarios. where this comes from, right? Yeah. If you and I both walked into a coach store, for instance, sure. 
right? The assumption is you're there to buy something for your mom or your, and, and immediately, hey, can I help you? Not because they want to help me, but they want to know, are you really here to shop in this store? <laughs> right. What, what kind of conversations have you had to have um, maybe with, with your son or, or uh, maybe even players uh, about how to handle these types of situations? It, it's, it's awful that you have to have these conversations, but, you know, you have to have them anyway. Uh, Advice-wise, you know, maybe with dealing with police or, or going into stores like that. Well, um, you know, and it's kind of lends to part of the issue, right? Um, we do... <laughs> We do media training, and I got my SID on here, right? Because we want our players to sound a certain way when they talk to the media. Because, and we should educate them on how to not get themselves in trouble, right? But we shouldn't be concerned that maybe they aren't speaking the perfect English language (laughs) to make the reporters who primarily are white people feel like those kids are smart (laughs) you know so yeah we do those things we talk to them about hey if you're driving make sure you have your license make sure if it's not your car you know the registration and insurance is up to date um be sure not to make any sudden moves don't run listen to instructions um and so, yeah, and it goes beyond just policing situations. We talk to them about these situations in terms of how they should comport themselves in class, right? Don't be the guy sitting in the back of the room with your hood up. But people do it all the time. I'm sure very many parents send their kids to school and don't ever worry about how their kids look in the classroom as long as they do good in school. <laughs> but we want, we tell our athletes, sit in the front Look the question out. Don't have your phone out. Don't have your AirPods in. Take your hood and hats off. Let them be kids. But we don't. So we do all those things because we're trying to help them craft a perception so that people can accept them when in some ways we're kind of changing who they are authentically to appease to people's uh, negative perceptions coming in the front door, you know? Um, my wife made an interesting analogy to me and I hadn't even thought about this we have a son who's going to probably be a good athlete I would guess my wife played volleyball at Virginia Tech and um, she works with athletes all the time we pay people well me included to train athletes majority of college and professional athletes particularly in my sport and football are African American so we train them, and our fans want those guys to be the biggest, strongest, fastest, meanest-looking, sometimes intimidating than any other guys, all right? And so we pay people a lot of money to, to help those guys look that way. And then when they take those uniforms off and they go out in the community and they are those people, they're a threat to people because of those very things that we've helped them become. (laughs) So when they get in those situations and they're bigger than the police officer and he's now feels like he can't control the situation physically, maybe now the power goes back to the holster. (laughs) So that's, we're kind of contributing almost in some ways to 
the situations, but that goes back to training, right? You can't be intimidated by the people in the community that you are hired to protect, no matter how much bigger, faster, stronger they look than you. And unfortunately, that's the reality of it. And coach, just from a pure fundamental perspective, how messed up is it that you have that you have that double standard out there that when they go to class they can't sit there in the back of the in the back of the room with their hoodie on these sort of things that you know that you use what's the word stereotype uh, these sort of black men that are sitting in class who are just just normal people and that we have to worry about that they have to worry about these things I'm sorry just how how difficult how messed up is that yeah it's it's crazy just because my personal experience man I'll tell you this quick story my best friend is a pastor in Columbia, South Carolina. He actually married my wife and I. He was a professor at the University of South Carolina when I first met him. One of the first classes that I took at the school was African-American Studies 101 class. I walked into his class with a pair of oversized sweatpants because in 2000, everybody wore oversized everything, an oversized t-shirt, a hoodie, a hat, and I had cornrows in my hair. I sat in the back of the room, but I came in. I was always a really good student. I was very much um, interested in learning. It mattered to me. And uh, we joke about it to this day. But after the class, the first day, I walked up to him and asked him, hey, what things do you suggest your students read outside of class? And it immediately changed his perception of who I was. We had never met before. And again, we're best friends to this day. I, I'm an avid reader still, but that kind of made me better <laughs> than the same person that was just sitting in the back of the classroom. I wasn't harming, I was just kind of sitting there like everybody else was. Um, but yeah, we tell our guys, that you don't, that's a bad look. You don't want to be that guy that the professor thinks is just here because someone put this on his schedule and he can't wait to get the weights this afternoon. Um, so those those things are very very real. Yeah, coach, not, not to speculate on on any like like regional type differences, but a lot of the main perceptions that you see out there is that the the South is is more of a racist place than than the North is, and you're you obviously are from New York, and and you spend a lot of time in the South. Uh, have you seen any sort of those differences uh, throughout your life? Um, you know what? I'll be honest. I, I really didn't grow up around very many white people at all. Um, there were a few Hispanics. There's a lot of Hispanics, uh, Puerto Rican descent, uh, Dominican descent. Um, there's several Italians. Um, and so I really didn't interact with very many white people at all uh, until I went to college. Um, and so I really didn't think about racism existing in a holistic standpoint other than what I learned from my grandparents and my parents about segregation and then you know things like that um, but I never thought that it was a regional thing because um, I think it was 1992 or 3 the Rodney King deal that was in Los Angeles that's not the south by any means um, but I do know that a majority of the civil war was fought and I think that kind of carved the perception initially but racism is everywhere, guys. I mean, it's there's not a corner of this world where racism doesn't exist. It's not overt everywhere, 
but I think that's almost as dangerous, right? The, the the covert racism, which is a lot of what we deal with today is like we talked about earlier. I'm not racist, even though I kind of know my boy is, you know, I've heard him say some reckless stuff when we were out on the boat one day about some people, but eh, he didn't, he's not home. That's a problem because he's going to have children one day. <laughs> that's going to be passed on. And they may not know as much to kind of keep that under wraps. And we need to kind of just root it out everywhere we see it as often as possible, because that's really the only way to get to a place where we can all respect each other and really and, and really go to go to bat for each other. Because there's, there, I have a lot of white friends. I mean, lots. Um, and, and, you know, I want to protect them, too. But I also want to make sure that I know, hey, there's a line you can't cross here. But I'm not going to cross that line either. And coach, taking a different track for a second, in all your years of life, racism's obviously gotten a little better, you know, throughout America in the past many years. In the amount that you've seen it get better and things have improved and society has improved, does that give you hope for the future? You know, it does. Um, again, I say, I think this, the George Floyd incident, because of how egregious it was, it was really hard for people who may have been able to find a reason to defend the behavior before, right? This one was almost, I'm sure there's some people, I can't be absolute here. There's some people who still may justify. In fact, I think I heard a, a mayor in a town in Mississippi say he watched the film and said, I didn't see anything wrong here, which is hard to think. But again, I think he's in a very, very small minority Right. Most people watch that. And even if they thought that whether he was resisting or whatever, to watch the video that we all saw was hard to defend. So I think that's what's given people. Um, it's made it easier for people who've been reluctant to go out there to go out there and say that's wrong to watch what looked like. Um, uh, I mean, that, that Ahmaud Arbery deal, I mean. It was just it was just as bad because it wasn't that one was really avoidable. I mean, those people left their house and created a plot <laughs> to do what they did, you know. And those things are they've given people uh, who again who've been maybe reluctant before a way to say, okay, I'm I'm with this, and now. Like I said before, I've seen 500, 1,000 maybe celebrities, coaches across the world stand and say, nope, I'm, I'm with this. I, I, I agree something has to change, uh, but now the action is necessary. So we have an opportunity to hold those people who said they agree accountable to helping us move the ball forward. And, you know, it starts in our homes, in our own hearts, with our children, our families. But then we can't be afraid to speak up when we have an opportunity on a public, in a public setting, especially when you have influence over people. I don't, I don't like the word power, but when you're in a position of influence, it's almost you, you take that uh, influence. You take also the responsibility to, to stand up for what is right. Right, and you mentioned those 500 celebrities, athletes, and we, we've seen more athletes and more coaches probably this time than we've ever seen get up and say powerful things. But in your eyes, just how important and impactful is it for these athletes, coaches to come out and voice their support? 
it's um I'm not sure there's a there's a level here like this this is really because of we're all influenced by the people we admire it's just a simple fact whether it be a musician or an artist uh, whether it be a politician or a coach or an athlete what those people say helps us figure out how we're going to process things um and so it's very, very important that people continue to voice what they believe both ways, because I'll stand here and tell you, I don't agree with people burning down buildings in their own communities that they live in. I think that's counterproductive. I understand the frustration, but let's sit down and organize and strategize a way to change the system. And to change the system, you have to change some of the people in charge of the system. And I think it's really simple. If there are only people in a room who all think alike and have the same experiences, you can't have change. There's no one to challenge, not just the authority, but just the thought process in the room. Even if we leave the room with the same conclusion, at least if there are varying thought processes, it gives more credence to having a sound process to go about doing this with. Um, and so I encourage people who have an opportunity to speak to their local representatives, whether it be mayors or Congress folks, or, because at the end of the day, those are the people who make the laws in our country, our elected officials. And uh, I just put out, you know, it starts by being active in the process of of what it takes to, to make those laws and get those things changed. I just learned of something called qualified immunity last week. I had never heard of it before. That's on me, but you know, where was I going to learn that from? I don't study the Supreme Court laws, but I should probably. It matters. <laughs> so I've been studying up on qualified immunity. Like, should we really hold the police officers to a lower standard of accountability than we do normal citizens? To me, that sounds kind of backwards, but I'm open to having a discussion and someone can maybe convince me that, yeah, this is important, that they need to be able to go to another level of defending themselves in the, in the public. I'm, I'm not there now, but I'm, I'm open to hearing it. And once we get to a place where we can hear different ideas that we don't agree with initially, we got a chance to make progress. And your, your kind of thoughts on how the government has handled everything, what, what they've done, what they've said, and how that's kind of impacted people? You know, it, it's hard for me to, to uh, I don't really do politics, but I think it's important to, to, to uh, no, I'm aware. Uh, I don't try to attribute a ton to our national politicians because it starts locally. It starts in the states you live in with the governors, with the cities you live in, with the mayors, with the towns you live in, with the council and the leadership at that level, um, because there's only so much power in the presidency. Right? We have a very outspoken president. Um, I won't level criticism there. Here's what I'll say. I believe leadership has to rise above and the the argument about being a counter puncher falls on deaf ears to me 
these are the people you've been elected to serve. Serve them. Simple. And if we could um, get your kind of when you, when you first saw the George Floyd video, when you first when the news first broke, when you heard about all this, you saw it, what were your first thoughts? Like, what were you feeling in your veins when when you saw that? You know, what, what kind of went through your head? Yeah, it was hard. Um, I think I saw it was just a, like a brief clip someone had sent me a message of, um, and so I went and did some research and found the full video, and I watched it. In, in its entirety and I really was angry um, I was I, I couldn't really believe what I had saw but what I always try to do before I react to anything is I try to remove the emotion in my reaction um, so I watched it again and it was like torture to myself because I know what I saw the first time, but I didn't really want to believe that I watched someone treat another person that way. Hang on his stomach, in handcuffs. And so I automatically think there's no way to claim self-defense at that moment. If you can show me something prior to that, I haven't seen it at that point, but at that point, you have control of the situation. So now it's supposed to kick in your job to protect. So he was serving the community. I guess the guy got called. He got called to serve the community. He did that. And now his job is to protect the people and the person in his immediate care, because that's part of their job also. The man was asking for breath and over and over again. And just a blatant disregard for human life. The guy was literally dying under your control. There were so many opportunities to spare his life and he chose not to. And that was disgusting in my, in my mind. Can you so, plug okay. Okay. Go ahead with Yeah, you can take this. Sorry, my daughter was in the office here. I was going to say, we have a special guest joining us. <laughs> uh, Coach, there was a, there was a deal uh, yesterday where uh, the head state of Fl Florida State's, uh, or the head coach, rather, of Florida State's football program, he released a statement saying that he had a conversation with his players about everything that was going on. And it ended up, his players were calling him out on Twitter. He, was, he, was, he lied about it. Um, and your shirt right there reads accountability. How important is it, especially during these times, to have that sort of accountability and, and, and credibility, you know, during these times um, to, to make sure that nobody is, is lying like this on, on, on Twitter and everything like that? Yeah, you know, that's, that's the danger. That, so you have to back up, sweet. Uh, Hold on one second, guys. Uh, okay, Ace will help you. All right. All right, we're back. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's the challenge, right? It's kind of why... <laughs> Well, I said what I said before about putting out something on social media. It's a, it's a, it's a shield in some ways. Um, and it, it gives you an out, but again, you're on record now and, and you have to be accountable to those sentiments that you supposedly have expressed. And, and that's a great example of someone who obviously thought that that was a way to 
um, it's, it's almost like, um, it's like pandering almost, you know, it's like pacifying, like, and so I'm glad, I'm glad this place called him up. I'm very, very happy. And I hope that every player who has a coach who has made a statement like this, not that he's spoken to him or that uh, these statements about we stand together with these athletes and their experiences and we want to be a part, they need to be held accountable moving forward. What kind of advocacy are they pushing for on their campuses? Are they helping create opportunities for these kids to be able to voice their concerns with these situations? Um, and, and, you know, when I first became the head coach, I don't know if you guys know, so our program is built on four things, respect, accountability, appreciation, and discipline. And we've not always um, done that the best, but we've always owned it when we haven't. Um, and that wasn't like I was just throwing some words on a piece of paper so that people can feel like, oh, this guy's got a great plan and look at these words on a piece of paper. No, I talk to my players about it all the time. This is how we live in these pro in our program. And at some point, if you decide these things aren't for you, then you can't be a part of our program. And so I'm glad that the kids, those players, hopefully those parents have their eyes open and are now going to, again, keep applying pressure, <laughs> keep applying pressure, make those people accountable to what they say, because that's politics, right? <laughs> it's kind of how we've gotten to some of the places we are in our political system. People get to say things and get elected, and then they don't have to follow up on the things that they said to get elected. You know, we're going to fix the roads and we're going to make the schools better and the words get roads get worse and we don't pay the teachers and whatever. I mean, come on. At some point, you have to hold your word has to mean something. And too much right now, we got just virtual signaling going on with no um, there's no meaning behind it. Uh, so accountability is I didn't wear this shirt by accident today. I'll just tell you that. It's a special. <laughs> Yeah, Coach, uh, building on an earlier point, we talked about coaches and athletes coming out and saying things. And we always have debates, you know, that whether whether athletes, whether coaches, all these people in higher above, whether they should be role models or not. And in this situation, when we have situations like this, do you believe that these athletes, coaches, whoever, have a moral obligation to be role models, to step up and define what's right and wrong in this country? Um. I don't know if they have an obligation to do that, right? Some of this is personal, and I think it's hard to judge those things because right now what we view as action is a Twitter post, <laughs> you know? There could be just as much happening in a town somewhere that no one sees because there's a group of people planning and strategizing and organizing on how to take action the best way. So I think we gotta be careful when we judge whether people are being role models or not. I do think that we all have a responsibility, athlete or not, as humans, to be a part of what's necessary to make it better for your children, for my children, for Stephen Howard's child, um, for their kids. And, and if we don't, that's our real failure. 
Well, Coach, thank you so much for, for this. And, and sincerely, yeah, really, really appreciate it. Yeah, this is awesome. Thank you very much. Hopefully, we'll, we'll, we won't be doing this on Zoom forever. So, Hopefully, yeah, man. Hopefully. <laughs> thank you, Stephen, for uh, setting this up. Mm-hmm. really appreciate it. Oh, thanks, guys. Appreciate y'all, guys. See you later, gentlemen. All right, cool. Have a good one, guys. Yep. All righty, folks. So that was our interview, our exclusive interview with Oklahoma State head coach Mike Boynton uh, and his response to some of the current situations in the country and, and his powerful message that he gave Sadiq. With that being said, uh, what are your thoughts on everything that Boynton had to say today? And, and uh, how are you digesting all of this? You know, I think the big thing was, I mean, this is, a, this is a Mike Boynton that we saw unlike any other Mike Boynton, right? He was, not to say that he isn't uh, like vulnerable at all, but he was just... He, you know, you know who Mike Boyden is. You know the guy we go in. He's a coach where you're just willing to joke around with him. He he wants to get to know reporters personally. And not to say he didn't this time, but this time around there was just a sense of you look at his face and you saw a coat of sadness, humility, just just you know just raw emotion. And when he spoke, it sounded like there was tears in his eyes. And I think the number one thing that spoke out to me was when he said, "I almost didn't post on social media." I think about that for a second. In today's world, that's almost like. You have to, right? It's a prerequisite mm-hmm. to live, to just be part of something. And he just, he, he pointed exactly to the things that are wrong with social media in terms of everyone just does it just to do it, right? Not to stick out, not to look like, okay, I don't want to be part of it, or just to do it like it's a taboo thing. But still, he, he, he spoke so well. He talked about the things that matter. He talked about what we need to do to be better as a society. And it, it was really, really your heart you always know that mike Boyne has a sort of passion about him but you you're right you heard it today you heard it today in his voice right. um and that's what i want everybody to take away from this when mike Boynton talked about how some people in their social media messages don't actually have a message in right. them they're just posting it just to post it exactly you heard it in mike Boynton's uh, voice today folks exactly. he had that sort of passion in him the passion that we always see from mike Boynton. right and this, this today was just displayed times 10 because this is an issue it's a serious issue in the country right now and uh, it's sad. It's really sad to see everybody dying because of things like this, because of systematic racism. And, and Mike Boyan is, is one of the voices who's trying to make sure that that goes away. Yeah, I know. I mean, definitely. I agree with you 100%. It was great just to hear what Coach Boyan had to say and his thoughts. And they weren't just thoughts. They were they were almost messages, right? Each each and every word he said was powerful. And this is something everyone should take away from that. Right, and we will have more content like this coming at you all summer long and extending into the semester here on the Deep in the Novo show. Hope you guys have a great day. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you guys next time.